This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد. This is an ayah and a passage, but I want to share something with you about from the end of Surah Yusuf. And a little bit of a background about Surah Yusuf. Much of the surah, as you probably already know, deals with the story of Yusuf عليه السلام. And in the historical background of this surah, the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم was asked a question. Um, of a historical nature, something kind of academic. He was asked, how did the Jews end up in Egypt? And if Yaqub himself, his other name is Israel, was in Sham, was in Syria, how come he ended up in Egypt? And another difficult question he was asked, of course you wouldn't know the answer until you know something about Jewish history. Um, and the other question he was asked was, how did they end up leaving, leaving Egypt? How did they get into Egypt and how did they leave Egypt? Surah Yusuf essentially, in the story of Yusuf the conclusion of it describes how the family of Yaqub, meaning the family of Israel, end up in Egypt. So it answers that very academic question that was asked in very great detail, meaning the entire events from the beginning of the dream of a child, eventually leads to an entire family moving to Egypt. And then that legacy of Bani Israel begins. Now the, the reason for asking an academic question in the minds of some of the Bani Israel, the reason they asked that question was it was the, an attempt to stump the messenger. Ask him really hard questions, you won't be able to answer them, and then you can just say, you, you've got one on him. You just one up to him. And you say, ah, so you don't know the answer, huh? Too bad for you. We thought you were a messenger. It was an, it was an attempt at undermining the message of Islam. That's what it was essentially. But you know what, sometimes you would think that when the answer is given, they ask a really hard question and the answer is given, well the net conclusion of that should be, they should become Muslim. Now that the, they, you guys asked a really hard question, and here's a really, really elaborate answer. <coughs> an, an answer in, in, the, in the most beautiful fashion, It's been given in such a beautiful way that really you should have no doubt left at that point. But you notice something. Even at the end of hearing such a convincing answer, guess what? <coughs> Nothing changed. Nothing changes. We learned something very powerful about from this. Islam and the message of Islam, our purpose is not to impress people. We're not there to give them impressive answers. And people will always expect to be impressed. They'll say, give me something that, I, that can impress me. What makes you believe in Islam? How come, what does your book have to say about this or that or the other? And you better give me an answer that satisfies my intellectual curiosity because Islam needs to meet my standards. I don't need to come to Islam, Islam needs to come to me. Like the religion of submission has to submit to me. Not me submitting to it, right? it's the other way around. And we get caught up in this trap sometimes, in the way in which we present Islam. The Prophet ﷺ, if you don't look at it from the point of view of revelation, if you look at it from a disbeliever's point of view, has a few disadvantages. The first disadvantage is he's not from Bani Israel, so he doesn't know much about their history, except what Allah may give him. The second, he doesn't know how to read and write. 
you know, you weren't reading something, وما كنا من تتلو من, you know, من من قبله من كتاب وما تتلوه بيمينك. سورة العنكبوت. Allah tells his messenger, you were reading nothing before this, and you weren't writing anything by your hand. إذا ترتاب المقيلون. In case any of those that are putting you into doubt or nullifying your message, in case they're wondering, you have no access to reading or writing. And that is something already considered beneath them because they're the academics, they're the scholars. They're Allah, even, Allah even gives them the, the, the word ahbab. Ahbab comes from hibr. Hibr in Arabic means ink. Ahbab in the Quran's translation is translated as scholars. But it's really describing scholars that write so much that their hands are colored with ink. They're dipped in ink themselves. So these are research scholars. And they write some very heavy questions. And the Quran, as far as Allah is concerned, the answer is satisfactory and beyond satisfactory. So you don't need to go beyond Allah's book and try to answer. So the only thing now you have to do, O Messenger وسلم, is what this ayah says. At the end of the story, here's what your attitude needs to be. قُلْ Tell them. هَذِهِ سَبِيلِي This is my path. This is the path I've chosen. I don't need to make sure that you like it before I choose it. This is my path. أَدْعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ I'm not going to discuss any more academics with you, no more historical you know, analysis or nothing. It's all been done. Allah has already exhausted that answer. I'm going to go back to the basics. My job as a messenger is not to impress you. My job as a messenger is to call to Allah. I call people to Allah. Allahi. And then he adds something very powerful. Every messenger called to Allah, didn't he? Didn't he? But he adds, the messenger was given something to add to this statement. It's very, very powerful. I call to Allah, I'll translate literally first, I'll, I call to Allah with eyes open. I call to Allah based on pure insight, on insight, on conviction. Basira is literally the Arabic word for the ability to see. I'm calling to someone who's in the unseen, isn't it? Allah is in the unseen. But my path, and the proofs for my path are as obvious to someone who opens their eyes. If they have the insight, if they use their intellect, it's as obvious as someone who's using their eyes. I'm not blind in my faith. You know the phrase blind faith? I believe because it was passed down to me. The messenger is being told, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, your declaration is, I call people to this faith with eyes open, not eyes closed. I want them to think. I want them to reflect. I have the evidence. I have the proofs. I'm not calling to something with eyes closed. And if you, those that have those, that academic, that scholarly background, will scoff at these proofs, it will take nothing away from their validity. It doesn't, it doesn't have to meet your snobby standards for it to make sense. It already makes sense of its own merits. I am this way, Anna. Because you, you might think, oh, the Messenger, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he's the one who sees the angel. You don't see the angel, he sees him. He's the one who, got, who went on a trip of Mi'raj. He saw things we will never be able to see in this life. We will see some of that after we leave this world and go into the world of the unseen. But as, as long as we are here, we're not going to see the things that the Prophet was shown. He, sees, he greets the Sahabi that's Shaheed and he lowers his eyes because he sees his wives coming to greet him. He has to lower his eyes. He sees things I don't see, you don't see. You know? He sees Angel Jibreel So, and he sees the jinn sometimes, and he'll tell us. So you could say, well, this applies specifically to the Prophet 
when he has conviction with open eyes, that's specifically for him, Allah says, no, tell them, Ana wa man ittaba'ani. I am whoever follows me. Whoever follows me also has their eyes open, they don't have blind faith. They're clear about their faith too. What opens our eyes to this deen? You know, for most religions in the world, if you ask most people that follow a religion, why are you, why are you Hindu? Why are you Christian? Why are you Muslim? Maybe the first response will be because it's the truth. But if you dig a little deeper, they'll say, well, because I was born in a Muslim family. Because I was born in a Christian family. I opened my eyes in this household. That's how I, that's just how I was raised. That's it. We're told, our messenger is told, my people, they follow this deen because they saw everything else and they see that this is the only straight way to go. They're convinced of it. They have basira. This basira is at the heart of what convinces a believer. What, what convinces a believer? Our iman is based on insight, on clarity, on proof, on evidence. Now I want to share something with you I've shared several times before. You probably may even have heard me talk about it before. But I feel it's so important it should be repeated endless amounts of times. My parents' generation, many of you that are sitting here that are Muslim or, or born into Muslim families, your parents' generation. My father never asked his grandfather, why are we Muslim? He never asked him. He never asked him, how can we believe Quran is the word of Allah? He never asked him. And if he did ask him, he probably got a good beating. Because <laughs> you don't ask those questions in the Muslim world. You just don't ask. It's obvious, we're all Muslim. What else would we be anyway? You don't question that. You just take it as a guarantee. It's something that's always there and you move on with life. But now we're living in the US of A. And I see parents all the time that come to me and say, Brother, my son, he's becoming, he, you know, I've had him memorize Quran. He went to Islamic school his whole life. He's a good kid. He's very obedient and respectful. And he went to college. And recently I noticed he started getting late for Salat. Then I noticed he started missing prayers and I've been trying to talk to him and he doesn't listen. But one day he sat down and he said, I'm not so sure if Islam is the real religion or the Quran is the exact Quran that was revealed to the Prophet or I'm not so sure if Hadith is protected and I'm not so sure if we have to pray. I'm not so sure what, you know, what about all those other religions? What about all my teachers and all my friends in college? You think all of them are going to hell? I have all these questions, mom. And mom never asked those questions herself. So she asks dad. And dad says, well, my dad taught me a solution over here. <laughs> but I don't think that'll work here. <laughs> so we have to find another solution. So we have to go maybe talk to the imam and say, my kid's asking these really weird questions. I never heard this before. What should we do? And the imam says, sometimes, some, some imams, maybe the child is possessed. <laughs> Does he have to move? He'll make sure, let's have to Yeah, maybe he is possessed, I don't know. Maybe have some Quran recited on him. Maybe, you know, some on him, he'll feel better. It doesn't go away. The, 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 the shaykh tells him, go make dua. This wasmata will go away. Then they go to another shaykh and another shaykh and another shaykh and then eventually they say, I don't know what to do. I'm, all I can do is dua now. And it's almost as though I don't, because the parents don't have the answer to that question, or maybe one shaykh didn't want to answer that question, you assume that Islam doesn't have an answer to those questions. Islam has answers to our questions, we just have to look for them. We just never look for them because we never felt the need to. 
We weren't raised in an environment where our religion was being questioned. A lot of us, for us, our religion was never being questioned. Now we're in a time where everything about our religion is up to debate. Everything. You know, I've met Muslims who will debate about the halalness of alcohol. They'll sit there and till the end, till the end of the night, they'll debate with you. And they'll tell you what's wrong with it. I've met Muslim youth in certain states, <laughs> California, that will argue, they'll argue about weed being halal. These are the kids that go to halakat. They run the MSAs. And they'll argue with you about weed being, everything about our religion is up for debate. Everything. Everything. This is the environment in which we are being raised. In which our children are being raised. And we have to understand a root problem. And that's, that's really why I wanted to share this talk with you. A root problem. Even if you answer all of those academic, intellectual, philosophical questions, isn't there a certain personality that even if all those questions are answered, nothing changes? Didn't the Bani Israel in Surah Yusuf ask some very academic questions? Weren't those questions answered in the best possible way? Did it change anything? No. Something else in addition is a problem. First of all, do we have to furnish evidences? What does Salut Yusuf teach us? Yes, we do. Because when they asked, very thorough evidence was furnished. Very thorough arguments were given. Very logical, very sound, very solid, rational arguments were given by the Quran. We have to furnish evidence. That takes care of the intellectual problem. But there's another problem. <laughs> There's a spiritual problem. There's a psychological problem. Not only do I not, I don't want to pray, because I'm not so sure if it's valid. But there's a second problem. I don't want to pray, because I'm lazy. Because I just don't feel like it. That's not an academic problem. That's a psychological problem. That's a spiritual problem. The Quran was revealed to us as a remedy of our intellectual problems. And it was also revealed to us as a remedy of our spiritual problems. It was revealed as a complete remedy for our problems. I want to have this talk especially at an Islamic school because we are at a crossroads in this country. We, a lot of, a lot of us, I hope this institution isn't like that, but many of them are, and it worries me. We've confused Islamic knowledge with Islamic thought. Just because you have a lot of Islamic knowledge, you have knowledge of the Qur'an, you have knowledge of Hadith, you have knowledge of how to make wudu, you have knowledge how to make salat, it does not mean you think like Allah wants you to think. It doesn't mean you have the attitude Allah wants you to have. Knowledge and attitudes, knowledge and thought process are two different things. Our personality is influenced by knowledge, but more importantly, it's influenced by our attitudes. What is our young people's attitudes toward prayer? What are their attitudes towards prayer? What are their attitudes towards the Qur'an? For that matter, what are our attitudes towards the Qur'an? You understand what I'm saying? The Qur'an didn't just come to give us knowledge. It came to shape our attitudes. The way we think. The way we view the world. It's really a way by which you, you develop a world view. My teacher used to say, you know, when you're wearing sunglasses, and they're tinted in a certain color, Everything you see gets tinted, right? The Qur'an is like that. Once you, once you start internalizing it, and you start thinking through it, the whole world, you start seeing it in a different way. Like it's, you see through the lens of the Qur'an. 
It shapes your worldview. It shapes your thought process. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we make the Qur'an a part of our thought process? How do we think the way the Qur'an wants us to think? We don't just teach its knowledge, but we become its think thinkers through the Qur'an. After all, Allah asks us the question, You know, why don't you think? Why don't you apply your intellect? Allah wants us to. Allah wants us to think deeply. This is a very, very critical problem. And I'll, uh, before I, I talk about its solutions, I want to talk to you a little bit about one, one example, short example, of how, how this manifests itself. I've met plenty of children that have memorized the Qur'an. Some of these kids are younger, 12, 13, some of them are older, 17, 18, 20. Kids that have memorized Qur'an. I actually have one like that in my family. I memorized the Qur'an at an early age. And now, he hates going to the masjid. He hates going to the masjid. He can't stand it. You know why he can't stand it? All he knows about the Qur'an is there was a teacher, he was really mean, if I didn't finish memorizing my page, I got smacked on the back of my head. I was taken away from my family. I had to be in this cruddy area and I had to study this Quran day in and day out. And I hated it. And at the end of it all, I was turned into a trophy where my parents would take me around and say my kid is a hafiz and people would look at me and assume that I'm all kinds of things. And you know, and I, and I had no idea what's in it. Nobody even cared to tell me what's in this book. This kid's memorized the Qur'an. He has knowledge of Tajweed. May even gone to Sunday school and learned a thing or two. But he has no emotional relationship, no attachment with Allah's book. I don't know, if the, I don't know of a bigger tragedy than that. Urdu Right? The darkest part is under, right under the candle. <laughs> right? You have access to this amazing light and you have no benefit from it. You know? And this is a very, very common, common problem. Our children are getting an Islamic education without developing Islamic attitudes. They're not developing them. So the question is, how do you shape attitudes? What is the solution? How do you build attitudes? Attitudes are a product of a couple of things, and the most important of those things is environment. Attitudes are shaped by environment. Knowledge and, knowledge and attitudes can become completely different sometimes. A, child, a young man learns that smoking is bad. He goes to health class, he sees pictures of lungs that, you know, of smoking addicts, and he knows smoking is bad. But he's in an environment of friends that smoke. Guess what? Even though he knows smoking is bad, is he gonna smoke or what? He's gonna smoke. Knowledge only goes so far. You have to have the right environment. Especially when you're impressionable. When you're younger, you mold according to your environment. You start talking like the people around you. You start dressing like the people around you. You start liking the things they like. You start eating the things they eat. You just want to be like everybody else. Your, your kids will come home and say, I want that book bag. I want those shoes. I want that shirt. I want that toy. And guess what? It's not that they want it. Somebody else has it. And they need to feel like they're just like them. They need to fit in, so they want it too. These are the effects of environment. The first, the environment that a child is most exposed to is which environment? Home. That's where he's spending his night. That's where he's spending a good time, his entire summer. That's the, that's the first environment that we have to worry about. Is the environment at home one that, that 
as soon as you go into that atmosphere, it feels like it has a Quranic attitude. In this household, Salat is the most important thing. Quran is a big deal. Understanding it, reciting it, memorizing it, being uh, appreciating its beauty is a big deal, not just for the children, but for the adults, for, for mom, for dad, for grandpa, for grandpa, grandma. Everybody loves the Quran. Everybody loves this book in the house. It's such a huge deal. And we celebrate this book. Allah says, because of this book, you should be overjoyed, you should celebrate. You know how we celebrate birthdays. And people celebrate, you know, graduation ceremonies. And they celebrate all kinds of things. You got a job, you celebrate. Who celebrates you finish memorizing a surah? Or you just finished learning the tafsir of a surah? And you're celebrating as a family. SubhanAllah. My child just started learning to, to recite the Qur'an. Or my mom just finished memorizing Surah Al-Baqarah. We celebrate even for my mom or for my grandmother. Everything about this Qur'an should be celebrated. This is a matter of building attitudes inside the household. When that starts happening, you'll notice the knowledge that they're learning in school will actually benefit. Because the attitude is there now. The environment is there. That's the first thing that helps environments. The second thing that helps environments the second thing, the first was the home environment, right? The second thing that helps our attitudes, the, the attitudes of our children, is good role models. The first role models are obviously the parents. The next role models are teachers. Making sure our children have good teachers. Because children don't just learn knowledge from teachers. Children learn attitudes, behaviors, mannerisms from teachers. The third is friends. And as they get older, it becomes more and more important. There's parents and there's teachers worrying about what school they're going to go to. What kind of things are they, are they exposed to at school? This is important. And then the third is what kind of friends do they have? I give this advice all the time. I don't get tired of it. All of your children have friends. Do you know what their full names are? The full names of your kids' friends. Do you know who their parents are? Have you ever invited those kids and their parents to your homes? Have you ever done that yet? If you haven't, you better. I don't care if your kid's in kindergarten, preschool, first grade, second grade, third grade, tenth grade, a senior in high school, it doesn't matter. You need to know who their friends are and who their friends' families are. This is absolutely critical. It'll save you. It'll save your children. We have to have a protective environment where all of us know each other very, very well and we share thoughts together. You know, when families come together that have like minds, and they spend time together, then the adults are growing together, and the children are growing together, and they protect each other, they help each other. And this, is, this is a really important phase that we have to, you know, or a strategy that we have to embody, especially in the Muslim community, where the population is very small. Well, alhamdulillah, there's a lot of you here in the hall today, but this is still a very small population. It's a very small community. And we have to re really get to know one another for the sake of protecting our own families. It's really, really important that we do that. And then of course, finally, I want to share with you that in my experience, one of the things that, or the thing that helped me change my attitudes towards the Qur'an was the masjid. A program, special program. There was a Qur'an program at the masjid. I went to it, I listened to some explanation of the Qur'an by my teacher. And I'm, my attitudes towards the Qur'an has changed since that time. It was back in New York, like, 12 years ago, I heard the tafsir of the Qur'an and I just felt like the Qur'an is talking to me. 
I never felt like that before. I thought of it as a book. I never thought of it as a conversation. It became something very personal all of a sudden. And from then, that point on, it's just I just wanted to learn more and more about this book. Why? Because, subhanAllah, how did I not know about this all this time? How did I not know Allah is talking to me personally? How did I miss out on that? I just thought it was this important book that, uh, you know, the Qari recites it in a beautiful voice and you're supposed to pray taraweeh and they finish it and, you know, some, some verses finish it faster than others and that's pretty much Qur'an. That's all Qur'an is to me. It, my attitude towards it changed. And then after my attitude changed, then I wanted to seek knowledge. But it started with a powerful program, at least for me. So my, one of the things I feel compelled to do, myself and my colleagues, is to offer more and more programs that help people change their attitude towards the Qur'an. That's something I feel I benefited from myself, and I'd like to help others benefit from. To see the relevance of the Qur'an, to see the power of the Qur'an, to appreciate something of the Qur'an maybe they didn't appreciate before. And that's actually the reason I came to you today. I wanted to share some of this advice and remind myself as a parent, and all of you, of some of these things. But also I wanted to invite all of you to Dallas for the 30th of June, inshallah ta'ala. On the 30th of June, Bayina is putting together its first conference. Some of you know about that already. It's called Amazed by the Qur'an. Amazed by the Qur'an. And it's just put a .com at the end of that, that's the website for the program. Amazedbythequr'an.com And what we're trying to do is, it's going to be myself, Shaykh Abdul Nasir, and Imam Suhaib Webb. The three of us, inshallah ta'ala, are going to be the presenters at the program. Each of us are going to have two sessions each, where we're going to just share some of our favorite passages from the Qur'an. And what we find amazing in them. And the whole point of that, for me, and my agenda, the reason I put this program together, was not to, for not to come, have people come and learn something about the Qur'an. Nope, it's not education. Because I believe before education comes what? Attitude. I just want people to appreciate the Qur'an. Have a change of attitude towards the Qur'an. Be in some respect, in some kind of awe in regards to the Qur'an. Something that they, that they never thought the Qur'an possesses. Something about its beauty, something about its power. You know? And that to me is priceless. Because when attitudes change, lives change. When somebody's attitude changes, everything, else, everything about their life changes. So I'm really, really hoping that we have a strong showing from, from Texas all around, inshallah ta'ala, at that program. Um, the, the registrations, we, we put them as online only, so I'm encouraging you to sign up online if you can make the time to come. It's Saturday the 30th of June, and it's an all-day program. It's a one-day program, so you could probably even make it one-day trip, like just go in the morning and come back by the evening, inshallah ta'ala. So I hope to see all of you and your families there at the program. If uh, uh, Muhammad or uh, Arif, if you guys can help pass those flyers out, inshallah, and get some to the sister's side also. I won't take, take more of your time, but I'd like to hear from you and hear some of your questions. If I'm able to answer them, I will. Please don't ask me fifth questions, marriage questions. Um, yeah, so those two are important. And, and don't ask me questions that have nothing to do with anything. Because I get a lot of those. So I'm just requesting that you don't ask those kinds of questions. But if I can, if I can answer you, I'll do my best to, to do that, inshallah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. How my attitude changed towards the Qur'an? Yeah, I, I can share more about that. So basically, I, I had somewhat of a curiosity towards the Qur'an when somebody gave it to me as a gift. Somebody gave me the Yusuf Ali translation as a gift. And before that time, obviously I was raised in a Muslim family, but my relationship with the Qur'an was 
pretty much an average Muslim's relationship with the Quran. You recite it when you're, especially if you're Pakistani. You recite it when you're a kid, and when you're done reciting it, there's a little party, and they make a cake, and they give it to you, and your obligations to this book are done for life. You are finished. You don't need to do any more now. You're done. The Quran, I already read it when I was a kid. And that, that doesn't mean read with translation or read with tafsir. Just, I read it like with a qari, and that was it. I'm done. The only other time as in my culture, you pick up the Quran again for the vast majority of Muslims in my culture, is when somebody gets really sick, or somebody dies, or when somebody's getting married. Somebody's getting married, or maybe Ramadan, we'll add Ramadan in there. Okay? These are the occasions where you see the Quran come out. You know, before the wedding ceremony, the Qari will come and recite the Quran, or you'll hold the Mus'haf over the girl's head as she's walking into the limo. You know? Because lightning might strike, especially after all that was going on inside with the DJ and all that other stuff. So you need some kind of security measures. Beyond that, the Quran, I mean, and this is in my personal life too, the Quran, when did we see the Quran? We saw the Quran when we bought a new car. You just, you know, you'd either hang some ayat from the rear view mirror or you'd stick a copy of the Quran in the dashboard because you don't have dual side airbags, so you need, you know, you need some security. So that's, that's, that was our attitude towards the Quran. It was nothing more than that. It was nothing more. So when I was given the Quran as a gift, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a translation of the Quran. I didn't know. This is at the time I was in high school. So I started trying to read it. As I started going to college, I used to take the subway to, to college and I was reading it on the way. The Yusuf Ali translation. I didn't get past 200 ayat. I couldn't do it. It was too hard. The English was so archaic and so biblical. I mean, I'm not rewarding this. Eloquent English. Just not for a high schooler from Queens. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't process it. On top of the English being difficult, it was another problem. Quran is structured like nothing else, you know? The subjects change very quickly. And there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of details missing. You know, وَقَتَلَ دَاوُدُ جَالُودُ Dawood killed Jalud. He just killed him? How, how did he kill him? What happened? And Allah made him a king. Wait, what, what Well, something must have happened in between. We just go from he killed him, and he became a king, and he became a great scholar. Oh my goodness, all this happened in one sentence? <laughs> you know? So it, it's not like other literature that we're used to, and, and we're re reading about Dawud and Janut, and all of a sudden we start reading about, you know, riba, interest, usury. Like, what does that have to do with Dawud and Janut? Where did, where did this come from? And it switches. And as a, as just as a reader, I, I just, maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe normal people can't understand the Quran. It's only for these scholars, you know, these sheikh types. Those have the scary looking beards, they're the ones that study the Quran, not normal people. So I, I left it. And then there was a program in Ramadan, it was happening in, in the Muslim center in Queens, where they announced that, you know, there's going to be two sets of tarawih. Now this is really deviant, guys. There are three floors in the masjid. The first floor is for women, astaghfirullah ar-Rabin. The second floor, it has women's section, the second floor is just men, all men's musallah. And the third floor was also tarawih, but they would play the fard together. And in the second floor, they would make 20 taraweeh. And in the third floor, they would pray four rakah taraweeh. Then they would do a dabs of those four, what they recited. A, a lecture on the four, every ayah they recited. Then they would do four rakahs. And then a lecture on every four, what they recited. Then four rakah. And they would go until 2.30 in the morning. Every night in Ramadan. So I heard the announcement about that and I was like, that's crazy. What are they going to do up there? So I decided to go just for four rakahs. So I go up there, listen, it was an Urdu series. 
was an Urdu series. But the teacher, Dr. Abdul Samia, was my Arabic teacher too. I didn't know him at the time. He starts talking about the Quran and I felt like he's not even, he's not reading, he's just talking. He's just talking. And he makes you, it makes you feel like Quran's a conversation. Like after a while of listening, you didn't even realize there's a speaker in front of you. You just felt like Allah's just talking. He's just telling you what to do, what not to do. He's giving you advice, personal advice. And he purposely avoided any technical terminology. He pur purposely avoided any like fancy quotes and citations from books and things like that. It's like you're sitting at a restaurant table talking to a friend. That's what it felt like when I was listening to him. And I started hearing things from the Quran, advice from the Quran come out that I never thought was there. And it's not, you know, advice is awesome, but advice that directly applies to my life personally. Like, whoa, Quran said that? It talks about that too? It knows how, Allah knows how I feel? He deals with this also? He deals with that also? I've felt that before. I've, I've thought like this before. I never realized. And it just, that first night when he went through the first juz of Waqarah, I was so intrigued, like, whoa, I never, I had no idea. I had read the translation, but I still never saw what he just showed, you know? And it exposed me to this idea that the Quran is actually originally meant to be experienced as a conversation. Because originally when it was revealed, it was revealed not in print form or in written form, but it was originally experienced by the people, it was experienced actually as a conversation, as something that you hear and experience. It's supposed, and it's, there's something different about listening to something and reading something. It's just something different. Sometimes you hear a really amazing khutbah, right? But if you read it, it's not going to have the same effect. It just won't. There's something powerful about listening. And then on top of that, if you're listening to something powerful to begin with. And that's what the Qur'an was to me. So I started listening to more and more of the Druze. And wanted to learn more and more of it. And then I realized I'm, in, I'm in listening to all this Urdu translation, English translation, English explanation of the Qur'an. I want to experience it for myself. Can this conversation happen between me and the Qur'an without anybody in between? Is that possible? Right? And that's what got me really seriously interested in Arabic studies. The reason I wanted to study the Arabic language is because I wanted a direct relationship with the Qur'an. By the way, even if you study Arabic, the need for scholars and teachers never goes away in the study of the Qur'an. But man, it, it brings a new joy to your life when you're standing there in Salat and the Imam is reciting and you know every word that was just recited. And you know the context behind those words. And you know the lessons and the advice that Allah is giving you at that very second. It has its own taste. Nothing, no sweetness in life will compare to that. Nothing. I still remember the first time I took my Arabic class, it was four days into Arabic class, and we had just learned about the Mulaf and the Mulaf the for, for the first time. Many of you don't know what that is, some of you don't know what that is, it's okay. I'm standing in Salat and in the Fatiha, and I said in my head, Oh my God, this is Allah, Allah, today. You know? And then he, the, 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 the body went on, you know, and he said another one, and I was like, Whoa, another one. Oh, another one. Oh, Allah, Allah, Oh, Allah, Allah. You know? But I was so happy, I figured something out while the Quran was being recited. I was thinking about something other than the carpet. You know, it was so awesome. And really that's what, it, 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 my mentality towards the Qur'an, it, at that very moment it changed. And it's been evolving since. But that fundamental idea, that the Qur'an is supposed to be experienced as a conversation, it never went away. It never went away. There is one thing I'd like to add and I'll conclude, since you asked that question. The Qur'an, there are two levels. There's someone who wants to know more and more and more about the Qur'an. 
Right? They, need, they want to know more and more about the Quran. But why would they want to learn? Why would they want to know more and more? At least I was exposed a little bit at first, right? And then kind of created a, 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 an appetite in me to want to do more. Had I not been, not, not been exposed the first time around, I would not even have known what I'm missing. I wouldn't have known. There was no way for me to know. You have to be exposed a little bit at first. And if that exposure is powerful, then it can guide the rest of your journey. We have to have so much confidence in the Qur'an that if we truly want to get guided by Allah Azza Allah will open the doors. Allah will open the opportunities for us to learn more, to understand better. And we don't have to worry about that, we just have to worry about making the right intention. And so that's kind of the motivation behind the, the khutbahs, the talks, and even inshallah ta'ala the conference, is to that, that, that foot in the door. Oh wow, that's in the Qur'an too? I want to learn more. I want to figure more out for myself. I want to pick up a copy of the seed. I want to pick up something and start reading it, start listening to more inshallah ta'ala, and hopefully benefit will come to Muslims through that. And even, even to non-Muslims. We actually even open to inviting non-Muslims to the program. To the program, I mean it's by the Qur'an. Because they need to know what's, what all the propaganda is about. Why are these Muslims so extremist? You know? Let, let the book speak for itself. Let it speak for itself, inshallah. Perhaps we can take one more question. Yeah. So the word attitude really resonated with me. What would you say is the best Arabic word that corresponds to that? Oh man, the best Arabic word that corresponds to attitude? Well, I mean, there's, 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 uh, there's different words they use like mash'ah, uh, mash'ah. Uh, but I mean, I, I think of it as really wujhat nabam, the point of view, perspective. For the, the Quranic term, I don't know, I have to dig. I have to dig. Let me, let me read this question and then I'll read that one. Uh, what do you do if I'm the only one in the family interested in understanding the Quran? Hey, you're like me. The rest of them pray only. Hey, you're like me. How do I get the whole family to get involved? You don't get the whole family to get involved. Just worry about yourself for now. <laughs> don't worry about anybody else. You don't have a contract for them yet. Just worry about yourself. And if your character sees improvement, and they'll notice it, inshallah ta'ala, through your good, good example, they'll come closer to the Qur'an. Don't have arguments at your home about, hey, read a surah, it's not, not going to work. My friend husband feels that it's not necessary to know the translation, as long as you have good, you're a good human being. Okay, let him feel that way. You can't help feelings until it's replaced with another feeling. Arguments won't change that. He, again, if he experienced the Qur'an a little bit, those feelings will change. He just, he just never knew. You know like the, the jinn. The jinn, they didn't know about the Qur'an. First time they heard it, they didn't just say, oh, we just learned something new. They said, inna sami'na Qur'anan ajaban. We heard the Qur'an, it's amazing. Oh my God, I never heard anything like this. It just completely took them off, like, off guard. They never knew something like that could even exist. People who say things like this, they just haven't been exposed yet. That's all it is. Find some non-confrontational way of exposing these people to the Qur'an. Some non-confrontational way. Some non-argumentative way. And let Allah do the rest because He's the one who changes the heart. Uh, what Qur'an translations and books for knowledge do you recommend? A lot of them, but uh, for, to be brief, I, I do recommend the English translation of Professor Abdul Halim by Oxford University Press. Alhamdulillah, I had a chance to meet him in London a couple of months ago. Really, really brilliant scholar. I don't agree with all of the translation, but it's more direct and easier language and truer to the expression of the Quran than other translations that I've seen. So I do recommend it. Um, 
Professor Abdul Halim in Oxford University Press. He's a graduate of Al-Azhar from like the 50s and has been studying the Quran, has been studying the Quran for the last like 60 years. He's a pretty amazing person, mashallah. When will we have Bayyana? Sorry for spelling it that way. Yeah, you better be sorry. You spelled Banyan. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. When will we have Bayyana here in Austin? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Inshallah soon. I, I, I just I, I get to travel very little now uh, because of my obligations at home and with uh, the campus and family. So I know I know you guys are close by, but it's just it's been very very difficult for me to leave. And I'm actually even cutting down my travel more next year. So, but I, I uh, hope to do have, hope to set some things up in the local like larger Texas area. If not myself directly, some of my colleagues in Jalal Canada. Hopefully we can come back and do something. I have a future second floor, Bayina. Second floor, Bayina? Inshallah. How does someone help guide a new Muslim? Um, slow and steady, and use the resources that are available to us. Call YSLAM, uh, get tips from them on how to help new Muslims, because they have their experience in this field. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. People that have experience doing this, you should take advantage of that. How can I improve my relationship with the Qur'an as a non-Arabic speaker in a practical manner? I can't spend months in a program or class due to work and family obligations, so what can I do? I never spent months doing that. Just a little at a time. Just a little at a time. And you know, inshallah, you'll learn some more about that when you guys come to the conference uh, on the 30th of June, but um, I want to share with you guys that um, I'm working on something to help people learn Arabic at home. Inshallah ta'ala. Um, and hopefully I'll have that released by October time. September, October time, and you can just be at home 10, 15 minutes a day and just develop a relationship practically with the language and at the same time with understanding the Quran. So, I mean, that's kind of the mission we have at Bayina to help people get closer to the Quran and make Arabic language and Quranic studies easier for them. That's our mission. So we're trying to work on something that we haven't really publicly announced yet, but in September, October, you'll see some cool things, inshallah. Um, the role of Peace TV, guidance, Buddha, Number three, YouTube. I watched the Seer by Ismail Bong from uh, right. That's awesome. These are all great resources. I don't know what your. It's not a question. Oh, these are all great resources. I, I, I who am I to have an opinion on scholars? These are these are awesome awesome resources, and you should take advantage of these TV and these these other uh, great TV shows. And actually, having those on at home is good for your kids too. They get exposed to good things. Inshallah. Do you know when the rest of the tafsir of Surah Yasin will be available at bayon.com? The answer to that is no, I do not know. Uh, what, can, what can we do when family does not keep times? You keep them. You be the annoying one. You call anyway. You leave a text message anyway. If family doesn't want to talk to you, don't say, fine, you don't want to talk to me, I won't talk to you. You, you can't be that person. Because Allah says, They cut apart what Allah commanded to keep together. We can't be of those people. We have to keep religions together, even if it's tough. Even if it's tough. So, it's, it's, uh, I know I'm generalizing, but it's really, there's no other way of looking at it. You have to keep family ties. You are aware that kids memorize the Quran best when they are younger. Yes. How can we encourage them to memorize uh, even if they feel forced or compelled. I definitely don't want them to hate it. Memorize it yourself. Celebrate it. Every little success. Constant encouragement. You're doing such an awesome job. Can you recite what you learned today? Oh my God, that's amazing. Let's go get some ice cream. Don't be Pakistani parents. 
And your kids will love memorizing Quran. Don't be depressing parents that are constantly yelling, constantly, you're not doing enough, did you do your homework, did you do this, did you do that? All the negative, no positive. That's really, really depressing. It's really depressing. And it's, it's no way to teach a child, because he'll associate all that negative energy with the Quran, not with you. The Quran keeps getting me in trouble. You know? You shouldn't do that. Be, be very, very encouraging at home. And if a child needs a break, give him a break. It's okay. You know what? Take a day off. It's alright. It's alright. Let him relax. Let him know that you're their friend. I see a hand in the back. Yeah, Harim? Um, they're asking about teenage with, uh, with parents. Who's they? <laughs> you guys? I had a road trip with you guys. <laughs> Oh, we'll, we'll have to have a conversation in the car, won't we? Okay, first of all, um, sometimes I have conversations with people about religion and I just end up sounding lame. For example, discussion on creationalism versus evolution. How do, what do we, what do you suggest we say to that? Well, first of all, learn the topic yourself. Uh, and you don't, you don't have to discuss everything that some, somebody wants to bring up. You don't have to do that. Islam is not about debates. Islam is not about proving evolution is wrong or creation theory. And these are just tangents. The first thing people need to see from you is your character. How you're different. How you don't use foul language. How you didn't go to see the Avengers. <laughs> why you didn't go? Why you didn't? Why, you know, why you don't you know, do, do every, something everybody else does? It's about character first. And that's the easiest thing to talk about because it's so visible. Especially if you're in high school. Your character as a Muslim will stick out like a sore thumb. You don't make eye contact, you know, in a, in, a, in a condescending way. You're respectful, but no matter who you speak to, some people deal with you with ignorance and you respond with patience. You don't have, you know, you don't worry about the swagger in your walk. You, you don't care. You have your respectful, mindful, courteous to your teachers, to your peers, you know. It just stands out. Those are the conversations. The akhlaq. You know the Persians are philosophers, right? Historically, the Persians are philosophical people. And these Persians, when they would come and meet the Prophet they didn't have a single philosophical conversation. They were just mesmerized by how he carried himself. Suhaib al-Rumi, for instance, didn't come in. These are the Romans, right? And the Romans and the Greeks have a whole long philosophical background. But you don't hear him having these like long-winded philosophical conversations. You don't. You just know that he, you know, just came to Islam. There's something beautiful about the character. We undermine and say, no, 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 I know character. Like I already have that. You don't have that. There's something that needs work. You know? Uh, Asr and Isha prayer is okay to direct. Delay, right, mom? Uh, no, no, son. No, it's not. Don't say that to your mother. Your mom just wrote that. Don't pray them on time. Last one, okay? Um, I'm a language arts teacher in, in an Islamic school, and I would like for students to apply the critical thinking and analytical literary skills to the Quran. I want them to see that they should think about the selections of the words, etc., as they do in other texts. Do you have any suggestions for a short passage in the Quran to do this kind of lesson? Well, um, that requires a lot of background in Arabic, and I don't know if it seems like you're a language arts teacher from the English point of view. 
Um, the closest research to that I can I can talk to you about is probably Michael Sells' The Early Revelation. It's a good book to go through, um, and it might be it presents a literary angle. If you can find whatever papers you can find from Spencer Mir, Professor Spencer Mir, um, and some of his papers are available on Islamic-awareness.org. Uh, he's written some, some aspects of the uh, Qur'an as literature or literary aspects of the Qur'an and they can be good high school reading. They're good high school level reading. Uh, if you'd like to read a tafsir of the Qur'an and then discuss literary issues, I would probably have to recommend Pondering Over the Qur'an by Islahi because he, he takes a literary approach to it, a literary structural approach to the text. So that, that would, those would be good resources. But if you're just going to open up a translation and start reading it, you're going to be talking about what's called kalam tarikh. It's not. It has no basis because you're talking about the English word, which we're not even sure is an accurate reflection of the Arabic word. And then you're talking about the choice of the English word, and it just, it just you're building on top of fluff. It's not really some foundation there, you know. So take so take advantage of some of these literary resources in Sabah Khan. What what is that program again? I forgot. What is that program in Dallas? June 30th. June what? June 30th. 30th. June 30th. What's the website? I can't remember. Amazedbythequran.com. Amazedbythequran.com. Dot com. And you're coming with friends, family, sworn enemies. I see all of you there. Sign up. Sign up online tonight if you can, please. It'll be very encouraging. Inshallah. And I hope to see you guys uh, soon. Probably sometime after Ramadan. If I can, I'll make the trip, inshallah, and see you folks. Thank you so much for coming out today. I really, really appreciate it. How much time do we have left till, uh, I think we have time till, till long, right? Looks like it's pretty bright outside. So, um, yeah. Is there a tafsir you recommend in English? To read? Easier to read or... Pondering over the Quran for Bakara is available. It's easy reading and it's good English. Ma'arif al-Qur'an by Muhammad Shafi is a good tafsir, but it's not a good translation. The tafsir is good, but the English is, eh, you know, it's like a Desi English. <laughs> the, the pondering over the Qur'an is done by the Malaysians. They are impeccable with their English, which is really, really good. You know, so, so that I recommend that. And it's a good tafsir to begin with, and it's been translated, so it's a good resource. Yeah. Which one is better, uh, dua in Arabic or dua in uh, my native language? Very good question. Which one is better, dua in Arabic or dua in my native language? First of all, dua is better. So make dua to begin with. Second of all, because I'm pretty sure Allah knows your native language. So that's, that's a given. The second is, it is, there is a benefit to knowing the duas in Arabic, but your duas to Allah should not be limited to the duas in Arabic. So it's not this or that, it's this and, and that. These, the du'as Allah taught us in the Qur'an are the, first of all, they have the, the benefit of being Allah's words. So they're already powerful. No matter what words I pick, they will not be as powerful as Allah's own words. You know, Adam made a mistake and he wanted to apologize. But Allah gave him the best possible apology, so Allah taught him what to say. So the phrase is, رَبَّنَا وَلَنَّا أَنْفُسَنَا are given by Allah to Adam because this was the best way to say sorry, right? So from that angle, what Allah teaches us to say is the best thing to say, number one. But that does not mean that that's the only thing you can ask for. You can speak to Allah in your language, and you can ask Him in your language, and that's fine. 
but it should never be an attitude this or that. That shouldn't be the case. And by the way, whatever Arabic du'as you memorize, you should study them. You should know what they mean. So, so even they become a direct communication. Inshallah. That's it. No, no, no. No more. Where can we find Quranic evidence for proper hijab, male or female, for a new Muslim? Man. I didn't know there was proper hijab for a male. <laughs> On the clothing, yes, but proper hijab is something else. Um, who knows what hijab means? Hijab? Cover. Um, something to cover your head. Cover your head. Anything else? Yeah, it literally means a barrier. A barrier. It's a social phenomenon. Before it is a piece of cloth. There are certain barriers in the interaction between men and women. There are certain barriers to the view of men for women and for men for women of men. It is first and foremost a means of protection. It is protecting society from you and you from society. That is the concept of hijab. The thing on your head that covers your hair and all of that, the term for that in the Qur'an is himab. The term for that is himab. The surah you want to read is Surah Al-Nur, surah number 24. Surah number 24. The other surah you want to read for, for clothing restrictions, two other places, probably the most important one, Surah Al-A'raf. Makkah surah, the beginning of Surah Al-A'raf, probably the most important passage on the subject. And then Surah Al-Ahzab, Surah number 33. So, I mean, but I gotta say something about this. I can't just leave it alone. If you just pull out ayat of the Quran and hand them to someone and say, here's why you should wear hijab, you're assuming that people are like robots. Oh, it's at that moment, I didn't think of that. And just, like when somebody's really angry, you're having an ayat, hey, look at this ayat, Allah does not like anger. Oh, okay, in that case, I will not sue you. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You, we don't use ayat like that, to just directly like that. There's actually a process of counsel. Which is why the most, I said the most important passage is which of these three? Nur, Ahzab, A'raf. Which one is the most important passage? A'raf. You know why? Because Nur Al-A'raf is counsel. It's counsel about clothing. Why does Allah want you to dress this way? Not just what He wants you to do, why does He want you to do it? Why does he want us to dress modestly? What's the, what's the benefit in that? That sermon by Allah is in Surah al Then you study the Ahkam, the ruling. The rulings came much later. But the, 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 the advice from Allah that I have given you the gift of clothing, and here's the reason I gave you the gift of clothing, that conversation is in Surah al It's a very powerful conversation at that too. A very, very powerful conversation. And I don't know when people, whenever people talk about hijab, they go straight to the ayat of hijab or the ayat of Himar, the ayat of Jalbab, etc. They don't go to Surah Al-A'raf. You should go to Surah Al-A'raf first, always. Because that's where the conversation begins. Then you go to those ayat al Then they become easier to follow. Inshallah ta'ala. So that was the last question I was going to take. We have a long journey ahead of us, myself and my students. So we're going to try and head out early, Inshallah ta'ala. Uh, it was a real pleasure having all of you here. Alhamdulillah, I know it got hot in here, but that's okay. Inshallah ta'ala, you've got plenty of time to cool off outside. It's 100 degrees, so it's really good. Inshallah. And you will stick it out until Mahdi, because I think dinner's coming here, I heard. Right? So, I know we're Muslims. We have some of the food. So.
So inshallah ta'ala, I hope to see all of you soon. Thank you so very much. And I hope to see all of you with friends and family on the 30th of June. Assalamu alaikum.